There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. Welcome back to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native American resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Susan Bolio, a member of the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota, mother of four, and director of tribal projects at an organization called Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. And I'm David Knoyer, a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. I work as an independent consultant, often facilitating discussions within Native organizations and as a media producer as well, gathering stories about how Native people use our strengths to build up our communities, addressing trauma and other barriers along the way. I love stories, always have. They're how we engage, share, and learn from each other, how we entertain each other. This is a collection of stories we're producing as podcasts intended to help Native people reflect on our own stories of challenge and of resilience. Many of the stories involve going back, reconnecting to perhaps simpler times, or traditions, say, of our grandparents. Other stories involve new information, new science, such as how the brain responds to trauma and toxic stress, and the implications for our core cultural lifeways, how they might help. Developing these stories has been a journey for us. We first started recording Thoughts About Trauma in 2016. We've been gathering more conversations and interviews since then, piecing together how science, social ideas, indigenous thought, and our own community stories come together to show us a way forward. In the first episode, we talked about historical trauma, the deep loss and unresolved grief that Native American communities experienced in boarding schools, foster care, and adoption programs in the United States. Always keep in mind that the question shouldn't be what's wrong with us, it is what happened to us. In this episode, we're going to look into the brain science around the neurobiological impact of trauma. Today, we're going to talk specifically about ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences. Somebody help me, see I've never felt free I thank a drug dealer for the drugs he dealt me My teacher's telling me that I'm not good enough And bully ass thugs telling me that I ain't hood enough Reservation Blues blues. So in this one, this video, which we call To Overcome Tells the story of an indigenous woman Who we call Mashkai Kuwait, strong woman She's fresh off of an overdose And she's found by somebody who ends up being herself Thomas X is a rapper who grew up on the Red Lake Reservation in Minnesota. His music speaks to what he and his friends have gone through growing up native. This is from a short film about the issues portrayed in Thomas X's music. You know, they do the work on her, the Narcan, they try to revive her. We flash back in time to the early 90s when she was a young girl. You know, her mother drinking, uh, the, the domestics, beyond the arguing, you know, the tough lifestyle. We tell the story of when she was young, when she was a teenager, into modern times, because it shows a pattern, a path that of things that happened out of her control in life that led her to her life choices. If the girl herself experienced abuse or neglect early in life, what we call adverse childhood experiences, those events may have impacted her neurobiological development, resulting in any number of negative adaptive reactions in her brain and body 
in response to the trauma. If that was the case, her body adapted to trauma. This is what the body's survival mechanism does automatically. It was not her fault. The accumulated effects of historical trauma are hitting our kids from the moment they are born now. ACEs, science, and programming shed some light on how exactly that happens and how we need to shift our approach to disrupt intergenerational cycles of trauma. Look into my eyes, you can see a troubled youth Suicidal tendencies can really humble you My foundation is breaking, about to crumble through The kids are screaming out for help, we need something new Somebody help me So in 2013, I was working for the University of Minnesota Extension Working with Native youth programs on several reservations I came across an article or something And out of curiosity, in the spring of 2014 I showed up to a presentation on ACEs, historical trauma, and resilience you know, the child is still yelling and screaming, but yet we look at that child in a different way. We look at it immediately struck me as relevant to so much of my tribal work at the time. Everything you just heard Thomas X talking about, we were constantly dealing with the effects of those kinds of traumatic cycles, and the ACEs work sounded pretty incredible. There's a film called Paper Tigers. It's about a school in Walla Walla, Washington, where staff and students looked at the ACEs in their lives, the abuse, neglect, and violence they had experienced as children. When the school started considering their history and how students were behaving, they changed how they responded to the misbehavior. They reduced school suspensions by 90%, tracked a 75% decrease in fights, a five-fold increase in graduation rates. That's incredible stuff. I wanted to be a conduit to bring this information to the tribes here in Minnesota. So in the following fall, I got trained in as a practitioner, and by the spring, I was designing a program specifically for Minnesota tribes. It's common sense, yes, that what happens to us early in life impacts us later in life. But for some reason, some families tell their little ones that they're supposed to just get over it. Well, the study of adverse childhood experiences suggests strongly that we don't ever get over it. In fact, there is direct correlation between the number of ACEs you had in childhood and your own rates of abusive behavior, addiction, and even poor health outcomes later as an adult. The original ACEs study happened in the mid-90s in Southern California. They surveyed thousands of middle-class people about their childhoods. The Kaiser Permanente Health System was part of the study, so researchers had full access to everyone's medical records. The survey asked about 10 specific kinds of abuse and neglect. Susan has made dozens of presentations about this. The original 10 ACEs that were looked at in the study, they kind of grouped them under three categories. So there was household dysfunction, neglect, and abuse. And under household dysfunction, you have substance abuse of a parent or primary caregiver in the household, parental separation or, or divorce, mental illness, um, domestic violence within the household, and then criminal behavior. So that is household dysfunction. Under neglect, there's emotional and physical neglect, and abuse, there's emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So those are the original 10 ACEs that they look The more of this kind of trauma you experienced as a child, the higher your quote-unquote ACE score. Then they compared the ACE scores with people's health histories as adults. There were over 17,000 participants in the original study. And what they found is that individuals who have higher ACE scores, that correlates 
with poor outcomes physically, mentally, emotionally, and socially. And they also found in the study that ACEs tend to co-occur. So when an individual has one ACE, they tend to have more ACEs. So mom was beaten, there was domestic violence in the home. Chances are the child was beaten at some point. Right. There was substance abuse. So right there, there's three yep. ACEs. Four, five, six of them, then the likelihood of your own abusive, addictive behavior is that much greater, not to mention your chronically poor health outcomes are likely to be worse. Absolutely. Yeah. So really the, um, where they started to see in the research, these really major impacts physically, mentally, emotionally, was at four or more. So if an, if an individual had four or more ACEs, they had a a much greater chance of um, having substance abuse issues, chronic mental health issues, coronary heart disease, uh, obesity, getting in relationships with individuals where then there would be domestic violence within their relationship, smoking, workplace problems. So they kind of had this theory that these adverse childhood experiences then led to disrupted neural development, which led to social, emotional, and cognitive impairments, which then led to the adoption of health risk behaviors like smoking, drinking, substance use, overeating, things like that, which then leads to disease, disability, and social problems. And they found, I think it was individuals with an ACE score of six or higher tend to die 20 years younger than an individual with no ACEs. This information is not a personal diagnosis. If someone had three traumas in childhood, which gives you an ACE score of three, it doesn't necessarily mean that is going to cause a specific type of behavior in every person but the researchers saw significant patterns at the population level, what they saw by looking at groups of people, what happened in their childhoods and in their later adult lives. By looking at this big picture, childhood trauma correlates with later rates of abuse, violence, and addiction as adults. The researchers point to the timing and duration of the adverse experiences in childhood and the impact of ACEs on brain development. The brain develops into early adulthood, into our 20s, and it's developing fastest when we are young children. Experiencing abuse at that age can disrupt healthy brain development. One result is, in short, that children's brains adapt by becoming more sensitive to potential danger. You might say their survival mechanism becomes overdeveloped. Those real disparities between lives without ACEs and lives with them are frightening. But to do anything about it, we need to know more about how they actually work. How do ACEs actually change a childhood, an entire life, so dramatically? There's more than one answer to that question, but at least some of it can be explained by neurology. It turns out ACEs actually change our brains. We know that the brain goes through a set of developmental stages after a baby's born, and when trauma intervenes in a child's life. It also intervenes with how their brains grow up. So part of this is about how brains learn, and part of it is how they develop. The brain has these three interlinked tools for dealing with fear and high levels of stress, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. It develops sequentially. So I'm going to show you all this thing. It's called the handy model of the brain. When so I go out into the community and do workshops, I bring along models, and we look at these parts of the brain together. So this part here would be your spine, right? Okay. Fold your thumb in, 
This part here is your ba the base of your brain, kind of like your reptilian brain. Your thumb here, this is your amygdala hippocampus. We'll talk about that in a minute, but this is that fight, flight, freeze, faint, right? If you fold your fingers over, this is your cortex, and this part right here is right behind your forehead. This is your prefrontal cortex, right? The amygdala is your emotional center. It's the part that sounds the alarm bells and tells us, you should be worried about this. The hippocampus is kind of the memory center. It adds context to the warnings coming from your amygdala, and it also plays a key role in releasing hormones like cortisol and adrenaline in your body. These are hormones that amp you up and get you ready to respond to threats. The prefrontal cortex, then, is like the logic center in the brain. It's the part that does what we usually call thinking or reasoning. When this whole tool set is working together, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex, it's a pretty effective way for humans to detect, get ready for, evaluate, and then respond to danger. But for kids, this process is pretty vulnerable because their brains have to grow up, and some parts of the brain finish developing before other parts. So your brain develops sequentially. In utero, the spinal cord is developing, the base of the brain is developing. These parts are all kind of here, but this part, your prefrontal cortex, doesn't fully develop until your mid-20s or even into, like, towards your 30s, right? So it develops sequentially. So for kids, the tool for understanding and responding to danger aren't totally complete yet. This is why we need some protection, some parenting and community guidance. And it's crucial how this happens, because while they finish developing, their brains are learning and growing based on the experiences they're having in life. The brain is wired from experience. When it develops, these individual cells called neurons reach out and create connections. Each experience we have forges a new connection or strengthens one we already have. It's actually incredible to see how brains look at different stages of development. So this shows kind of the breakdown, like at birth, he's about 10 weeks now, so he's probably a little more connected than that, but at birth, there aren't a lot of neural connections. It helps people to really understand the malleability of that child. What they experience at those ages has a physical, tangible outcome. And that's because our brain is wired by experience. The, the infants haven't had a lot of experience in utero. They've had some, but not a ton. What do you notice between birth and elementary age? There's, a lot more. There's this explosion of connections, right? It's called branching. Um, and so <laughs> those of you that have young kids, right, what is the primary question they ask between like two to five? Why, 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 why right? They're trying to make sense of the world, trying to understand what's going on. So their brains are really wired to take in all this information and try to make sense of it, make connections, make connections. So what do you notice now between elementary and puberty? There's less. There are less connections, right? And the reason why is because in early, um, just pre-puberty, the brain starts to prune away those things that didn't happen very often in an effort to become more efficient. So you see a lot of the connections that are still there are those stronger connections, right? So, so on the one hand, a child's brain isn't a complete organ when they're born. On the other hand, the experiences they're having while they develop are affecting how that development plays out. Everything has the potential for really lasting impact. And depending on what part of the brain is developing at the time of the trauma, that is the part of the brain that will be impacted. One thing we know, for example, is that the frequent release of hormones like cortisol can have serious effects on the body. It can actually inhibit brain growth. And we also know it can be a habit-forming response. Our brains can kind of get addicted to releasing these hormones too much or too easily if we don't manage to wind down enough, feel safe, recover a sense of balance. So for example, if you have a one-year-old and they experience some sort of trauma, the parts of the brain that are developing at age one will be most impacted. 
But if they have caring and competent adults and they have a pretty safe and secure environment growing up from then, the trauma isn't likely to impact them that much. However, if a young person has trauma from, say, birth or pre-birth up to 18, all of the parts of the brain will be impacted because all parts of the brain are developing throughout 0 to 18. So on a biological level, trauma really has the capacity to affect both how we are seeing that child behave, but also how the brain itself is setting that child up to become an adult and move through other moments in their life. When they talk about being trauma-informed, schools and other social service providers typically are trying to understand what's really behind a child's outburst or an adult acting out before they judge what appears just to be bad behavior on the surface. In our recorded conversation, I asked Susan about the kinds of behaviors we might see in someone with a high A score. You know, some of the research that talks about how when young people have experienced a lot of trauma, there can be a lot of like hypervigilance and they are much quicker to see danger, even if it's not real, but to perceive danger. And so then they go into that fight, flight, freeze, or faint response, right? And so a lot of times when we see people acting out, it might be because they, they've been triggered and, they, and so they go into that fight or flight mode. So if you're worried about mom being beaten every night and you're worried about that door opening to your bedroom and you being assaulted as a young child, there are chemicals flowing through your body, adrenaline, cortisol, fear, is running through your veins and your, your, your neurons. And then your brain adapts. Just as nature adapts, our bodies and brains adapt to this fear, this violence, this trauma. Yeah. And so then we're on edge. We're hypervigilant. Our triggers are going to be faster. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, behaviors that initially seem totally out of context start to make sense. When you realize that a kid has been neurologically adapting to high levels of stress, of danger, their brains are learning to develop into the brain of someone who operates in a dangerous environment all the time. And without understanding this, their responses and behaviors in some situations might seem totally out of line. This is a point I really try to play out in my presentations. So in school, when kids are expected to sit down, pay attention, share, right? The kids whose brains have been wired for fight, flight, freeze are gonna have a hard time with that, right? Because they were not, their brains haven't been wired for that. So there's gonna be this really painful disconnect for them. They're gonna be labeled as, you know, ADHD, behaviorally deviant, and all these other things. If I grew up in an environment- Schools are starting to use a simple system with youth who are stressed or angry. One is like a stoplight. A teacher asks the student to pick the color green if he or she can talk calmly about the situation. Yellow, if she's not sure and needs some time. And red, if the anger or emotions are so strong that any conversation won't go anywhere, so it might be best to wait until the next day. The fact is, teachers don't know what went on at home that morning with students, or how the ride to school went, or if there was a bullying episode in the hallway. But we do know that if the brain and body is flooded with adrenaline, say, it's going to take nearly half an hour for the body physically to metabolize that hormone so the brain can calm down enough to begin to think rationally and employ the executive function in the prefrontal cortex. It's much the same with adults who are triggered, hypervigilant to something that feels like a threat to them, but maybe no big deal to others. 
When large groups of people are living on the edge, so to speak, the suspicion and negativity can feel overwhelming. For individuals, learning about a high ACE score can help put their own behavior into greater perspective. For me, when I first learned about this information, it really was new insight and understanding into what had happened to me and and the experiences in my life and the behaviors suddenly made sense and that of my family suddenly made sense and my community and the communities that I've worked in as an adult, the tribal communities. And so looking through the lens of ACEs has really helped me to rethink and um, adjust what I do, how I do things. And like you said, has really been a point of reflection, self-reflection. I cannot teach something I don't know. When I started really shifting into practicing these strategies and seeing how transformative it was in my life, I could speak about it in a genuine way and say, hey, this has changed my life. If you can get good at, at identifying what your body feels like when you're about to have a stress response. So this is something that I've really been working on. I notice that it starts with a quick like feeling in my stomach that starts working its way up. I start to get hot. And if I don't catch it before that, then I'm going to have a stress response, right? Um, but if I can catch it and if I can start to breathe, if I can notice it and do those strategies that help me, we, we say hug your amygdala, keep your prefrontal cortex online or bring it back online, right? This isn't just something that impacts Native people. About 10 years ago, there was a special effort to educate members of the Minnesota State Legislature about the combination of adverse childhood experiences and brain development. The House will come to order. Later, I heard one of those legislators talk about how eye-opening it was. In addition to being an emotionally powerful issue for participants, perhaps as they considered their own family history. The same information those state leaders heard was what Susan has presented in recent years. Often when we go out and we do these presentations or, or share information on ACEs, I've had several people come up to me afterwards and say, I wish I knew this information before I became a parent. I wish I knew um, how trauma impacted us as children. And I wish I was able to make that connection between my own experiences and my own behaviors then as I grew into being an adult and my parenting behaviors. I think when people understand this information about ACEs, it helps provide a new lens through which they can see the world. And this new lens helps us to see others' behaviors, those behaviors that are really hard to deal with, the outbursts, the inability to self-regulate, the cussing, the swearing, all of those things that aren't socially acceptable, we now can see them through this lens of pain and hurt and trauma, see it for what it is, as opposed to seeing them as a bad person. To remember that often this comes from a place of hurt, pain, trauma, you know, there's some reason why they're like that. It can help us to um, maybe not agree with how they're, you know, how they're moving forward when they're like this, but be able to have that compassion and understanding like, okay, so this is, I can understand why they're doing what they're doing, even though I don't agree with it, or even though I wish it was done, you know, in a different way. Yeah. But recognizing the difference, I think, is really important. The population that's most impacted by ACEs should really be driving the changes in the community. Instead of people 
who don't have a lot of aces telling those of us with high aces, oh, this is what you need to do. This is what needs to happen, right? Because we've been in all these other systems and we know what's not working and we know how these systems tend to re-traumatize and trigger constantly. And so being able to have some say in how these um, changes are made is really important. Aces are not our destiny. And it's about how people who are impacted by ACEs are coming together, becoming leaders in their community, and creating self-healing communities. This has been the second episode of Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma, narrated by me, Susan Bolio, and David Knoyer. In the next episode, we will look more into the science behind how trauma can actually be passed down genetically, and also how our resilience might be embedded as well in our DNA. That last song you just heard is from Leah Lem, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe in Minnesota, and her band, Molecular Machine. We want to extend a thank you to her and to Ojibwe rapper Thomas X, who also contributed music to this episode. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts Susan Bolio and David Knoyer, as well as the voices and stories they gathered for the series, including those of Lindsay McMurrin and Thomas X, both of whom you heard during this episode. Sierra Edwards also assisted them in gathering interviews and stories. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode, with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.